a couple of a couple of things while you get settled in. The first is, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up to Genesis chapter 22. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to take kind of a, a flyover of a decently large chunk of Scripture here, but we're going, to, we're going to spend the most time in Genesis chapter 22. The second thing is, I want to make a quick announcement. If you were here at our uh, vision night a few weeks ago, at the end of January... Uh, or if you've listened to the podcast, you heard us say that we were working, we were in the process of working on hiring a part-time missions pastor. Well, we have found that person and hired that person, and his name uh, is Joe Stewart. He's a, a part of our congregation here. He and his family have been here for a few years now. They've led the adult, young adult small group for two years. Um, he has an amazing, amazing heart for uh, the lost, both globally and here locally. And so the role is part-time. He's going to start on Monday. Uh, We're really, really excited about what the Lord is going to continue to do in our global missions, ministries, and and efforts, and also what the Lord, where the Lord will take us, how he will lead us, um, how he'll use Joe to lead us in our evangelistic efforts here in the Northland. We care about both of those uh, equally. And Joe is passionate about both. And so he's going to lead us in those places beginning tomorrow. We're really excited about that. Uh, Joe was here during first service. I had, him, I had him stand up so people could see him, but he's not here uh, now. He's got a couple of sick kids, and so uh, he went back home. But you get a chance over the next couple of weeks, if you haven't met Joe, uh, to, to do that, and I encourage you to do so. Sound good? Let's pray, and then we'll get started. God, thanks for this morning. Thanks for the opportunity to come and to worship, Lord. We just invite your spirit here to move in our hearts this morning. Lord, as we interact with one another uh, as the body of Christ, the church, Lord, would uh, we encourage one another, support one another, celebrate with one another, uh, rejoice or weep with one another, depending on what's going on in life, Lord. Uh, Would we as the body be a constant encouragement, a constant source of uh, relationship and community and Uh, accountability, Lord. God, I pray that as we continue to worship you in song, Lord, that we would proclaim truths about who you are, and we would lift high your glory and your majesty and your Son in this place this morning. And as we look at your word, God, would this not just be a mental exercise, but would your spirit engage our hearts in seeing who you are as you've revealed yourself to be in Scripture, and what that means for us, Lord. And would we always come to your word with the desire to be transformed by it? God, transformed certainly in our minds, but also in our hearts and in our lives. And so would you do that in our time together this morning? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I had a, um, I had a teacher, a choir teacher in high school who was phenomenal at her job. Um, she was maybe one of the most uh, talented professionals uh, I've ever gotten to interact with. She made high school students make music that uh, high school students shouldn't be able to make. I mean, it was really phenomenal. And when you were in class with her in rehearsal, you could be in a room of 65, 70, 80 high school students all singing together, and if you sang a wrong note, her head would just... And she would look at you 
And she knew you messed up, and you knew, maybe you didn't know before, but you knew now that you had made a mistake. And so it was like the culture in our choir that uh, when you made just an honest mistake, you raised your hand real quick, and you just, she would kind of look at you, and she would either smile or kind of nod her head at you. And she knew that you knew that she knew that you messed up. Um, And it was just this quick way of uh, accepting responsibility for honest mistakes. And it was so ingrained in us that I can remember pretty distinctly being at a state choir competition. And we go to the portion of the day uh, where you sight read. And so your whole choir goes into a room and they hand you out some music that you've not ever seen before. And you get one shot at it. And I can remember being in that room and somebody... Uh, kind of across the way from me must have made an error and we're being judged and they raised their hand and I thought not the right time (laughs) admirable thing to do not the right setting to do it in it was just it was ingrained in us it was a great lesson at a young age about accepting responsibility and so at times we make mistakes and I made one last week uh if you were here last week um I just miscommunicated, I misspoke, I, had, uh, I made an addition to my message kind of late on Saturday night to give a little more background on who Abraham was, and really quickly in my haste to get it into my notes, I just put the wrong name in for Abraham's father, and I said his father was Haran, his father is Terah, it says that incredibly clearly, actually, Terah, Abraham's father. Uh, some of you knew that I had made that mistake, and God bless you, you just didn't say anything. <laughs> And so I made the mistake all three services. Um, Thank you for your grace in that. Some of you didn't know that I made the mistake, and it's important that we go back and get the details right. And so I want to, if you had taken notes and you put Haran down as Abraham's father, uh, I just want to make sure we get it right. I misspoke. His father's Terah. Um, I'm going to make plenty of mistakes over the course of my time here. Some of those uh, hopefully, very few of those will be public and in all three services. Uh, more, some, some of them will be behind the scenes, typos and emails, you know, typos and Bible initiative books, which some of you have let us know are in there. Thanks. Um, I'm, gonna, I'm going to make mistakes over the years, and uh, I want to own those, and will continue to do so. And so it was important for me to go back and make sure that we got that right from last week. Sound good? Great. We're going to walk forward Uh, this week. And last week we took a very zoomed in look at Genesis chapter 12. It's the Old Testament covenant, the promise that God makes to Abraham to bless all the nations of the earth. And we see Abraham step into that by faith. And that now anyone who has the faith of Abraham is a son or a child of Abraham. And that faith that we have is not in an Old Testament promise that God made, it's in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And that by faith, we step into that promise. The faith of Abraham is what makes us a child of Abraham, one who inherits uh, the blessings of that promise that God made. It also means that we bear the responsibility to carry the message of the gospel to the nations. And we talked about that last week. And we, we did that in a very zoomed-in kind of fashion. Well, this week, we're going to take the opposite approach, and we're going to do a very zoomed-out, kind of 30,000-foot overview look at what is a large passage of Scripture, from Genesis 21 to about 35. That's what your reading is going to be 
over the course of this week. And it involves a lot of very prominent individuals in the Old Testament. It's the end of Abraham's life. It's all of Isaac's life, Abraham's son. And it's the beginning of Isaac's son, Jacob. It's the beginning of his life. And it was impossible to pick one kind of segment of that that was representative of the whole. So instead, we're going to take a big look at everything. And you may have noticed in your reading over the last week, and you'll see it again this week, that there are some names that are kind of difficult to pronounce and some cities that are a little bit difficult to pronounce. Uh, That's okay. I want to give you an encouragement. No one's born knowing how to say all of the kind of challenging names of places and people in the Old Testament. In fact, we learned them because we either heard someone else say them or we asked. When I was in college, I spent a year of time or so really uh, looking at the book of Philippians. And there's a person's name in there. His name is Epaphroditus. I had no idea how to say that in college, so I gave him a nickname. I called him Paf Dog. <laughs> um, and so I want to encourage you, when you come across a name that you're not quite sure how to say... Uh, one option is give him, give him a clever nickname. I got a text message from a person in our congregation who this past week was doing some of the reading as a family out loud, and they came across a name they didn't know how to say, and so they dubbed uh, this particular king's name Cheddarloaf, uh, which was a great name, and they have since called him that all week long. So you can, you can give, him a, give him a nickname until you've got a chance to figure out how to actually say it, or another option is download a Bible app that will read to you. And when you come across sections of scripture that are dense with a lot of names you don't know how to pronounce or a city you can't figure out how to pronounce, just click play on your Bible app and let it read it out loud to you and then you'll know how to say that. The main thing is don't let difficult pronunciations be the thing that derails you from reading the Bible. Don't let I can't figure out how to say this person's name, I'm frustrated, I'm going to stop, be what derails you from investing yourself in scripture. There are ways around that. Ask someone, download a Bible app, come up with some fun nicknames, but continue to invest. And when you arrive in those challenging places, find ways to figure out how it is you pronounce those things. There will be some more of those uh, over the course of this week and into the future. Uh, Like I said, today we're going to zoom out Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Uh, What we're going to see in Abraham's immediate family is that they are super dysfunctional. Their level of dysfunction makes whatever level of dysfunction you think operates in your family look minimal. And the big picture today is this, that God uses faithful people, despite their brokenness, to fulfill his perfect plan. God uses faithful people, despite their brokenness, to fulfill his perfect plan. And so I want to just show you some of what we see in kind of the first family of Israel. That's who these individuals are. Later, as we read throughout Scripture, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob fondly, lovingly uh, get this title, and God gets this title throughout the generations of the Jewish people, that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And it's this very kind of familial thing. Well, they're super broken people. And oftentimes for us, our sin is quiet. Maybe it's hidden. Maybe just the people closest to us see it, or maybe we know it very acutely, but not anybody else is aware of it. Well, for this particular family, not only do they know it and their family knows it, but anyone that's ever read the Bible also gets a front row seat to exactly 
what kind of brokenness exists here. And it causes us to ask a question. It causes us to say, why this family? When you read Genesis 21 to 35, you walk away thinking to yourself, God could have chosen anyone. He could have chosen someone like Job that we read about last week, who was blameless and upright. He could have chosen someone like Noah that we read about two weeks ago who was seemingly righteous in the way that he lived. And yet God chooses Abraham. And so we're going to circle back around to that question at the end. But before that, let me just give you some of what you're going to read this week. And you'll be able to fill in the gaps. And some of these stories will be familiar, but some of them aren't familiar. And so this is what we experience as we read about Abraham and his family. Abraham's married to a woman named Sarah. We saw that last week. They received the promise that Sarah, despite her old age, is going to bear Abraham a son. And that son is going to be the family line by which God blesses all the nations of the earth. And Sarah and Abraham get worried that that's not happening fast enough. And so they come up with a plan for Abraham to have a son. And it involves Abraham sleeping with Sarah's servant, Hagar, in order that she would get pregnant and bear Abraham a son. And that's exactly what ends up happening. She gives birth to a son named Ishmael. And Sarah is instantly unhappy about that. They get exactly what they hoped for, which was a son. They get it by a means other than what the Lord has carved out, other than what he has commanded, and they're instantly unhappy about it. And that's the way that sin typically works. We see something that we want, maybe even something that we think is good and that the Bible says is a thing that we should desire and that the Lord wants to bestow upon us and bless us with, and yet we go about getting it via a means that's outside God's will. We sin in order to achieve that thing, and then pretty quickly we're disenchanted with it. Sin will always overpromise and underdeliver. That's the way that sin operates. That's the way temptation functions. It sounds good and full of promise on the front side and yet leaves you empty and hurt on the back side. And when we get into those moments, what we see here is that Abraham and Sarah don't stop and say, Gosh, God promised us a son and it's not happening. Let's pray. God promised us a son and it's not happening. Let's go before him and find out maybe there's something that we're missing. No, instead they just come up with their own plan to achieve it by their own means outside of his will. When you arrive at a place in life where you feel like there's something that you desire that's not a bad thing in and of itself, and yet it's not happening in your life, my encouragement is lengthen your patience. Don't lower your standards. Lengthen your patience. Go to the Lord in prayer. Get on your knees. Pray. Wait. And maybe the answer to your prayer is yes. Here is this thing. Maybe the answer to your prayer is not yet. That would have been the answer to Abraham and Sarah's prayer. Maybe the answer to your prayer is no from the Lord. The key is to understand that in each of those instances, no matter how badly we might want a thing or think that we deserve a thing, the way that God answers our prayers is loving and is his absolute best for us in that moment. And it can be hard 
and it can be trying, but lengthen your patience. Don't lower your standards. And so seeing Ishmael, after having Isaac, Sarah becomes so frustrated that she suggests that Abraham send his son, Ishmael, and Hagar, her servant, away from them. And in Genesis 21, 12, you don't have to flip there, I'll read it. God says, do not be displeased because of the boy and because of Hagar. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of Hagar also, because he is your son too. It's as if God steps in in that moment and says, I'll take what you broke, and I'll work it together according to my perfect will. And we're told in Genesis 21, 13, that Abraham wakes up the next morning... And he does just as God told him. That's one of the tensions throughout this passage of Scripture, throughout this whole section of Scripture, Genesis 21 to 35, is that there's this really tight inner working between the faith of an individual and yet their sin all the while. They're right on display next to each other. Abraham sins in order to have a son and yet is faithful in sending them away because God promises to take care of them. They exist right next to each other. And that's something that I think we feel very poignantly in our own lives all the time. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know what it is to trust Him completely and yet wrestle with your own lack of trust in Him completely. You feel that in moments of temptation. You feel that in times of sin. They exist Side by side. And that's one of the things we see very clearly on display throughout this section of Scripture. It continues to work itself out in Isaac, Abraham's son. He's married to a woman, Rebecca. They have two sons, Jacob and Esau. If you're a sibling, you understand the following scenario. You were growing up. You asked your parents, hey, I'd like to have a sleepover. Can so-and-so come over? And for whatever reason, your parents say, no, that's not going to happen tonight. And like four months later, your sibling says, hey, can I have a sleepover? Can so-and-so come over? And your parents say yes. To which you remind your parents, you love that child more than you love me because four years ago, you didn't let me have a sleepover, but now you're letting brother or sister have a sleepover. And what did your parent lovingly and repeatedly do for you? Reminded you. I don't love one child more than the other. We treat you fairly, but possibly differently. Because not everybody has to be treated the exact same way in order for it to be fair. We love you both the same amount. Well, in this particular story, Isaac and Rebecca absolutely have favorites when it comes to their children. Of the two, Isaac's favorite is Esau. Of the two children, Rebecca's favorite is Jacob. And so Jacob and Rebecca team up in order to deceive Esau, and they team up in order to deceive Isaac and steal the blessing, the covenant blessing from the Lord. And before that, Jacob deceives Esau in order to steal the birthright. Now, birthright at this time is kind of the lion's share of the father's inheritance that would go to the oldest son. And Esau is off hunting. He comes in. He's tired. He's hungry. Uh, Jacob's got a bowl of stew. He says, hey, Jacob, can I have some of your stew? Esau says, or, uh, Jacob says, absolutely, if you'll give me your birthright. Esau says, well, I'm hungry. Give me the stew. Sounds like a good deal. Again, 
If you could just stop and say to Esau, hold up, man, lengthen your patience. Don't lower your standards. The bowl of stew, not worth it. And yet, see, your, see yourself in there. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you know the words that he said. He has come to give you life to the full. And there are times where we say, I understand that, Jesus, but I could really use the stew right now. And we trade life to the full for momentary sin. We'd rather have the stew in the moment. Well, shortly following that, as I said, Jacob and Rebekah team up to steal Isaac's blessing of Esau and the kind of family lineage of the covenant promise from the Lord. This story of Isaac and his two sons is full of just deceit and parental favoritism and murderous kind of raging anger. And you read it and you say to yourself, this family, I mean, this family of all the available families. And then it gets worse. Jacob grows up and he goes to take a wife, uh, the daughter of a man named Laban. And he works seven years in order to receive Rachel as his wife. And at the end of those seven years, instead, Laban gives his older daughter, Leah, to Jacob in marriage. And so Jacob says, okay, I'll work seven more years in order to be able to marry Rachel. So he works seven more years. Well, by the time the story's over, uh, Jacob has four wives. And polygamy, which becomes a very regular occurrence in the Old Testament, kind of enters in very, very clearly for the first time here. And the important thing to know about that is that even though it's prevalent in the Old Testament, it's never the Lord's will, and it's never really a positive thing ever in the Old Testament. And you look at all of that, and you can't help but say, what is the interlocking truth here? Well, there are a couple. And the first is this. A godly life is lived in faith, though riddled with sin, and moved forward by the will of the Lord. It's lived in faith, but it's just pop-marked with sin all the time. And yet the Lord's will moves it forward. And then here's a second one. And it's difficult to understand, and yet it's completely evident throughout all of Scripture, and that's that God has planned for the presence of our sin while working for the advancement of His plan. He doesn't want us to sin. He doesn't will us to sin. He doesn't enjoy our sin or take any pleasure in our sin. And yet, at the same time, He's never caught off guard by our sin. He's never derailed by our sin. He's planned for the presence of it while working for the advancement of His plan. And if you're sitting here and you think to yourself, I don't really know that that's totally true, Tim, I would encourage you to consider, how does Jesus end up on the cross? It's because a bunch of people were lying, hateful, murderous, and yet Jesus had to go to the cross. 
in order that by his death and our faith in his death and resurrection and work on our behalf, we might be able to step into eternal relationship with the Lord. God planned for the presence of all of that sin in order to accomplish his ultimate will in the death of Jesus Christ that humanity might be redeemed from their sin. Just sprinkled all throughout the lives of this family is the working of God to move forward his plan to use Abraham's line to redeem humanity despite the fact that they're woefully sinful. And I want to give you kind of the ultimate picture of that in Genesis chapter 22. So if you've got your Bible open, we're going to look at a couple of verses. In Genesis, stay in Genesis 22, but in 1719, God tells Abraham, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. And then this is what God says in Genesis 22, verse 2. Here it is. He, that's God, said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Child sacrifice, as abhorrent as it is to us, and it should sound awful when you read about that here, was a common and accepted pagan religious practice. And so Abraham, like we talked about last week, being of, of, of pagan background, worshiping lowercase g gods from, uh, who aren't the Lord, that command would have sounded somewhat normal. Oh yeah, this is what the gods want us to do, is sacrifice our children sometimes. And yet at the same time, it stood in direct tension with the promise he got in Genesis 17. And so what does he do? Well, verse 3 tells us, So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his men with him and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and he went to the place which the Lord had told him. His sin on full display in this whole deal, and yet... This incredible faith at the same time. Okay, God, you said to go do this, and so I will go do it. And imagine the moment here. Imagine this whole scene playing out. Abraham loads up the donkey and the servants, and, are, uh, and they, they head out on their way, and he's got Isaac there with him. And Isaac's carrying the wood for the sacrifice. And at some point, Isaac says, hey, Dad, where's the lamb? You said something about a sacrifice. Where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God's going to provide the lamb. And so they leave the servants behind and they head up the mountain by themselves. Isaac still carrying the wood. And they, they get up there and Abraham, old, aged at this time, ties his young adult son onto an altar who must have willingly laid there because he could have struggled his way out of it. And imagine the intensity. Uh, hey, um, what's going on here? Where's the lamb, Dad? What's happening? And then there would have been this moment where Abraham lifts the knife up. And all the while he's thinking, I know this is the son of God's promise to me, and yet he's called me to do this sacrifice. And I don't understand those two things. And Isaac is laying there thinking, apparently there's not a lamb. And then an angel of the Lord cries out, Abraham, Abraham, do not sacrifice your son. And Abraham lifts up his eyes, and there's a ram caught in the thicket by its horns, and he goes over there, and Isaac stands up thinking, whew, Dad, that got intense. <laughs> and they sacrifice 
the ram there? I mean, what is, what's going on exactly? God's preserving his people according to the promise that he made. You take a step back and you look at this entire story and despite all of the sin, despite all of the brokenness and all of the dysfunction, you arrive at the end of this section of scripture and you think to yourself, I don't know how God did it despite all these people. I don't know how God brought this promise to come to pass despite all the sin and the brokenness of the people around me. And the truth remains, God uses faithful people despite their sin to fulfill His perfect plan. And so I said we would answer the question, why this family? Well, you read, and you're going to read and fill in all the gaps of this over the course of this next week. And you're going to see that they quite clearly don't deserve to be chosen and treated with any special favor. And yet it's a gracious act of God that He chooses Abraham. It's a merciful act of God that He preserves Abraham's family line despite all of their sin and that's the nature of grace. You don't deserve it. When you read this section of scripture, this 15 chapter section of scripture, we should be awed by the immensity of the Lord and His faithfulness to His plan despite how finite and small humanity is in relationship. God's use of broken people makes him look appropriately big and humanity look appropriately small. Part of the answer for why Abraham is that in working through Abraham and his family, it's obvious that God is the one accomplishing the work. No one else. Clearly, it isn't this family. And the same is true in God's choosing of you and working through you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you should read this passage of Scripture and say, why Abraham? And then immediately ask yourself the question, why me? We talked last week about the reality that every person who places their faith in Jesus Christ receives the the burden, the pleasure, the calling to extend that gospel to the ends of the earth and to turn around and be a blessing to all of the nations. And we should ask ourselves, why us? And we should also realize that despite all of the brokenness and all of the sinfulness and all of the finiteness that exists within all of humanity, God is advancing His plan in a way that is astonishing and makes Him look marvelously glorious despite our incredible brokenness. And there are a couple of truths I want to just point out here as we end. I hope that they're an encouragement to you, regardless of where you are in your life right now. The first one is this, that who you are today does not limit what God could do through you tomorrow. You may be sitting here and you know amazingly well the sin and the brokenness and the places where there's struggles to be faithful in your own heart and in your own life, and you might say to yourself, God could not ever use me for something Not even something grand and and huge and large, but God probably couldn't even ever use me to make an impact in my family or make an impact in my community, whatever the case might be. And I would turn around and encourage you with, if he could use Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all of the deceit and all of the hatred and all of the polygamy and all of the just willful, overt sinning, then he can use anyone. But there's a second part to that statement, and it's this. 
that who you are today is not who God wants you to be tomorrow. He wants us to be increasingly molded into the image of His Son. He wants the person that you are tomorrow to look more like Jesus than the person that you are today. And He wants that perpetually to the very end of your life. He will do the work in accomplishing the first. He will accomplish through you everything that He wants to accomplish through your life. He will accomplish through His church and through humanity everything that He wants to accomplish through us. And at the same time, He wants to partner with you in accomplishing the second, and that's molding you into the image of Christ. That requires both your effort and His power made available to you through the Holy Spirit. There's a beautiful promise. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on up. There's a beautiful promise in the midst of this uh, passage where God says to Jacob, I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. The same is true for all of humanity. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, He will not ever leave you until He's done what He's promised. What He's promised is that He's going to take you home to spend eternity in the presence of the Lord. Thanks to His work on the cross. And by the Holy Spirit, He will not ever leave you or abandon you in the midst of that. He also will not ever leave or abandon humanity in the midst of accomplishing His promise to take the gospel to all tribes and all nations and all tongues that members of every tribe, nation, and tongue would come to faith in Him. God uses faithful people, despite their brokenness, to fulfill His perfect plan. Amen? Amen. Let's worship together. You can stand up.